just be like, this is our first podcast, we're starting the podcast, this is what we're going to talk about. Oh, I clicked record at the best possible time. <laughs> you! <laughs> Karma! Karma! That's fair. Alright, uh, 15 seconds. Oh, I, can't, I can't say it out loud. <laughs> Alright, this is it. This is it. We are doing a podcast. This is the first episode of soon-to-be-a-major-motion podcast, wherein uh, we read a book and watch a movie, but not at the same time. <laughs> you say we like we're yeah, both who, doing both first, of those. First of all, who, who are we? <laughs> uh, I am Cody Beck. I am Billy Beck. No relation. And uh, this is uh, this is our first pilot episode of this podcast. Um, the way this is going to work is Cody's going to read a book. I'm going to watch the movie based on the book. And then we will discuss. And uh, should we say why we're doing this? How this came about? Yeah, might as well. Yeah, so a few weeks, months ago, uh, I sat down and watched Fried Green Tomatoes for the first time. And I was watching alone in the living room. Cody's in the bedroom doing her own thing. And uh, after the movie was done, she came out, and we had this really interesting conversation. Um, because Cody had read the book uh, years ago. Yep, as a child. And we had this great discussion about choices the filmmakers made um, in regards to changes to the book they made for the movie, things that were cut. Um, and it was, it was a fun conversation, and we were like, that would be an interesting podcast. I would listen to someone else talk about that. No one else has done that. Nope, definitely not two or three other podcasts that I found, but don't worry, this one's named something different. <laughs> so. We, okay, so we both feel not like uniquely qualified and like, oh, we're so smart, but we both have a very strong interest in the two particular things. I love to read. I prefer reading to watching things most of the time. Bill watches everything he can get his grubby little fingers on. <laughs> I, I like movies, okay? I I like movies a lot. And I think they're more... Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Inconceivable? No. That's not the word. <laughs> I Whatever. don't think that word means what you think it means. <laughs> That's a good segue. <laughs> <laughs> 236, I cough. <laughs> So the uh, do you wanna do you wanna do which one we're doing as a pilot? Yeah. So for our pilot, we went into uh, probably one of my favorite movies of all time. Um, it's a pretty great movie. Uh, we're doing the Princess Bride. Yes. Uh, so what is your history with the book slash movie, The Princess Bride? So uh, when I was about ten or so, um, my sister-in-law um happened to be babysitting me and she wanted to rent some movies and she rented um uh one of the scary movies i don't know which one it was uh and the princess bride and we started watching scary movie and it scared me so we switched over the princess bride and watched it and it, it i mean the movie is a classic so it kind of stuck with me and then years later I happened to be in my high school library and came across the book. I didn't realize there was a book. I know it literally says there's a book. <laughs> I didn't realize that was a real thing. 
And so I picked up the book and I was like, oh, it's that movie that I really liked. And then I read it and it was different. And ever since, every time I see the movie, I'm always like, did you know the book is actually blah, blah, blah. <laughs> we'll get into that. We'll get into that. <laughs> now, I'm similar. Um, I came across this movie first as a kid. Um, I want to say it was at like my aunt and uncle's house and they threw it on, but like I was playing games with one of my cousins or whatever. So in and out. And that was probably the first three or four times I saw this movie. It was on on a TV in a room I wasn't in the whole time. So I was very familiar with scenes from the movie uh, for years. But it wasn't until probably I was in high school that I actually sat down and watched it start to finish for the first time. The scenes got an order in my head. I realized that half the scenes I was thinking of were from Robin Hood Men in Tights. Um, <laughs> and uh, fell in love with the movie because it's... It's such a well-put-together movie. Um, never read the book. Why would I read the book? I just watched the movie. It's got to be the same, right? Yeah. Is it the same? No. Let's get into it. <laughs> I would like to say that William Goldman would be deeply disappointed in both of us. <laughs> For the record. Absolutely. <laughs> Grandfather's here. Can't you tell me I'm sick? I'll pinch my cheek. I hate that. Maybe he won't. Hey, how's the sickie? Huh? I brought you a special present. What is it? It was the book my father used to read to me when I was sick, and I used to read it to your father. And today, I'm going to read it to you. It was a time when life didn't seem so complicated. Marriage is what brings us together today. What? 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 I'm killing myself once we reach the honeymoon suite. Wouldn't that be nice, hmm? A courtly age. Of gentle conversation. I won't always come for you. But how can you be sure? This is true love. Oh, no. Is this a kissing book? No. Actually, there was a lot of treachery. Peril. <laughs> and revenge. Prepare to die. Never go in against the Sicilian when death is on the line. <laughs> there were affairs of state. And I've got my country's 500th anniversary to plan, my wedding to arrange, my wife to murder, and Gilda to frame for it. I'm swamped. And affairs of the heart. My Wesley will always come for me. Your Wesley is dead. I've seen worse. Have fun storming the castle. It's more than turning. What's the difference? We've got him. Think it away? It would take a miracle. Bye-bye. It's a story of love. A tale of adventure. It's as real as the feelings you feel. You're kissing again. Someday you may not mind so much. The Princess Bride. Not just your basic, average, everyday, ordinary, run-of-the-mill, ho-hum fairy tale. So yeah, let's let's get into it. Um, <clears throat> do you do you want to go or do I want to go? <laughs> let's start with you because I feel like more people are going to be familiar with the with the movie, so I can be the unwelcome the unwelcome interrupter. Oh, that's. A role you are built to play. <laughs> so the movie opens like all great fantasy love movies 
with a 10-year-old boy playing baseball on a Sega in his uh, very Chicago bedroom, sick, and then Grandpa comes in. Uh, well, Mom comes in first, brings in Grandpa, who's got a book that he wants to read called The Princess Bride. I assume this child, by the look on your face, is not in the novel. <laughs> uh, he is, actually. Is he? But it is not his grandfather, it is his father, and the uh, child is actually the author, uh, not the, uh, not the grandchild, um, so and... It, so I always, I always assumed that the, the kid and the grandpa was just a, um, a device used for the movie, like a framing device to tell the story, but also make it more, uh, family-friendly, not family-friendly, but like... No, it's... Up-to-date modern. It is also used as a framing device in the novel. I had no idea. So, basically, the the novel starts... I read two versions of this. I listened to the audiobook by, uh, narrated by Rob Reiner. Said it was not abridged. It was absolutely <laughs> abridged. Uh, then I read the book. Uh, the fir I read the 30th anniversary edition of the book. The first hundred pages of this or so were introductions from various, uh, various different editions. Um, the framing device of the novel is that William Goldman got very, very ill as a child uh, with pneumonia. And this would have been, in, when he was a child, this would have been in the 40s or 50s. Um, so pneumonia was basically like you lay in bed and you just lay in bed and get better. Um, and so his device uh, is that his father, who was a Florinese immigrant, uh, came in with this book and started reading to him because that was all, he couldn't do anything else. I was about to ask if this was a true story and then he said Florinese immigrant. <laughs> I, I believe that his father actually was an immigrant, but because of what he's doing, he, he, the, he creates the fiction that Florin is a real actual city. Oh, it's a city. Or sorry, a country. Okay, okay. He okay. creates the he creates the illusion, and he sticks with the illusion. Like in in the various intros, he takes his grandson to Florin. Like he treats it as though it is a real place. And there's like more references and jokes. Like Stephen King is actually uh, descended from people in Florin, uh, which comes back later. Um, <laughs> but basically, he's really sick. His dad comes in and is like, "I'm gonna read you this book." called The Princess Bride, and he basically reacts the same way that the kid reacts in the movie. Okay, so, ew, gross kissing, none Ex of that. Exactly. Does, the, does he do the break with, with the eel It's actually that? not an eel it's in not the an book. Eel. It's oh, sharks. We'll get into it. We'll, we'll get, let's get there. Let's get there. Okay, yeah. so. So it, there, the framing device still exists, but it is the author himself, and basically that's where he starts his love of reading and eventually becomes a writer, and he finds out when he buys the book for his own son that this is act what his dad actually read him was the good parts because it's actually a like thousand page long satire and and it's like a satire about royalty and politics in um florin and the other cities and countries surrounding it um and so he decides to do the abridgment which is the actual novel there is no full princess bride okay there is only s morgan stern the princess bride abridged by William Goldman, but William Goldman wrote the whole thing. Okay. Cool. I like that. He also wrote the screenplay for the movie. He did. So yes. I, I assume some things will be very uh, similar as we go along. Yes. Um, so we open with a child and grandfather or 
Floridian immigrant. Floridian. Floridian immigrant father um, tells the story of the Princess Bride, which begins with Princess Buttercup and her farm boy, Wesley. Um, I gotta say, our generation likes to laud the mummy as, oh god, <laughs> look at this sexy cast. This is why we're so bisexual. Bisexual danger. We are sleeping on the Princess Bride. <laughs> so, there's actually um, a chapter. So, it, it also opens on the story of Buttercup and Wesley. Okay. Um, Buttercup is really dumb. Really? She, all of the characters are more fleshed out, but Buttercup is the epitome of pretty not smart. She's not stupid, but she's very dumb. And there's this whole thing about, like, how she's, like, the 20th most beautiful girl in the world based on potential. Um, and then Count Rugen actually sees her. And there's this whole other thing where, like, in the next chapter you meet Prince Humperdinck. Before Butterclub and Wesley have even fallen in love, you meet Prince Humperdinck. And what happens is he gets, there's this whole political intrigue thing and he has to get married because his father is dying and he has to have an heir. And Count Rugen is like, um, well, I saw this really attractive woman one day. Do you want to marry her? And um, so then it goes back to Count Rugen has already seen her and Count Rugen has a wife in the book. Really? Yes. Okay, Interesting. Because I had a thought while I was watching this. <laughs> was it the gayness? The gayness! It's there, right? <laughs> it is so there in Prince Humperdinck, and you never... The other thing is that when you meet Prince Humperdinck, he is not Chris Sarandon. He is described like Otis the Wrestler. <laughs> he is described Otis as being a short, barrel-chested man with <laughs> circular legs. Just square and yes. don't shave that beard because you will not like what's underneath. Correct. Oh, he God. is described, he is nothing like Chris Sarandon. He is not charming or suave. He is supposed to be just unattractive. Oh, I prefer Chris Sarandon by far. And I'm picturing Otis. Right? <laughs> but speaking of wrestlers, <laughs> so, so Buttercup and Wesley fall in love as you do, as you wish. Um, Wesley needs to go on a trip he gets killed by the Dread Pirate Roberts. Uh, Buttercup mourns, meets Humperdinck. This all happens off screen, but apparently it happens in the page. Yes. Um, she actually says no to Humperdinck when he asks to marry her. Good. I wish that was in the movie. She, he meets her and she says no. And it's basically like the Christopher Walken scene from that other movie where he's like, no, but I have a gun. I don't care. Oh, from Seven Psychopaths? Yes! Uh, where basically, she's just like, no, I'm not ever gonna love you. And he's like, whoever said anything about love? And she's like, oh, well, in that case, fine, I don't care. And so they get married. And it's okay. basically, it, it's, there's like a, you can definitely see a little bit of, like, satire on consent versus royalty there. Because it's Ooh. like, you can't really say no. Yeah. Because he yeah. straight up is like, either you say yes now... And you become a powerful queen, or you say no and you die very shortly. Like, at best, that's all loosely implied in the movie. Because yeah. we jump right from him disappearing to she's a month or two out from the wedding, riding her horse, and that's when she gets kidnapped by the real hero of the story and his boss and his giant friend. We got Fazzini Fezzik and Inigo Montoya. 
you actually get more of their point of view in the book as well. I like that. So I have a theory, and we'll get to it later, about... We'll get to it. Mm -hmm. um, so they kidnap her, throw her on the boat. The idea is to make it look like she's been kidnapped by the forces of Gilder, yes. which is a rival nation across the sea, to start a war. Because who doesn't want to start a war? Oh, I'm sorry. I missed something. Oh, go uh, back. This is not in the movie at all. The Zoo of Death. The who of what? <laughs> Prince Humperdinck. Do you know how Buttercup has the line about... Um, uh, being trapped, he's a great hunter. He's the greatest hunter ever. Yeah, and and he tracks them through Gilder as well. And yes. that, that's that that part is shown on screen. So he, it, because his father is ill and he has to stay close to home, he and Count Rugen build the Zoo of Death. The Zoo of Death is five levels. The first level is, uh, I think it's uh, fast beasts. Like that's where like the cheetahs and lions and stuff are. The second level is strength. The third level is, I think. Poisoner, so it's like snakes and that kind of thing. Um, the fourth level is bats. Just bats. It's it's a specific kind of made up bat that he creates for this. Bats um, of unusual size. And then the fifth level is empty because they've never found anything to put there. Ooh. Um, and uh, so that is introduced as early as chapter two, and it's like very ominous. Okay. Um, but basically, that that's where you actually first meet Prince Alpertig, is he's murdering an orangutan in the zoo of death. <laughs> and then it cut, and then like you also see Count Rugen. But yeah, I'm sorry, I forgot about the zoo of death. But. No, thank you, thank you. <laughs> I did first I've ever heard of that. I love it. Yes. Um. <laughs> anywho, our our uh, our princess is, is kidnapped. By uh, the forces of Fizzini, um, who, Wallace Shawn, great performance. Love him in this movie. He's so perfectly annoying that he dies exactly when you're ready for him to be done. <laughs> he is... So in the book, they're called the Sicilian crowd. The aside being uh, two's a party, three's a crowd. Ah... Um, and they are actually legitimately terrifying. Like, it's implied that they are not just a random group that was thrown together for... It's not even... It's directly stated. They were not just a random group that mm -hmm. the the prince happened to find. They are terrifyingly powerful in the underworld, purely because of the the power of the three people involved. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's a little different in the movie. That would be like one of the first things that's kind of different. Because they're introduced, uh, Fazini aside... Very, um, not apologetic, but, uh... Like we are he, the he, poor, humble circus performers. Yeah, like, and even even beyond that point, when it's clear this is a kidnap, this is what's gonna happen, there's that wonderful beat with, um, Fezzik and with Inigo, with the rhyming. That's something that goes through, that carries exactly through, through the, the whole book as well. Yeah. Like, I wish it would come back in the movie, but it's such a it's such a great, charming scene right at the beginning that tells you these two characters, they've got good hearts. They're doing something evil, but it's because, you know, the forces of capitalism grind us all to a powder. <laughs> they need to do it for the money. A job's a job. Bassini also is the one, in the book, Bassini is actually the one that knocks out Buttercup, not Fezzik. Hmm. Uh, he, he's the one that actually knocks her off of the horse and binds her, um, and then just Fezzik carries her. Um, and when they're in the boat, you know that line about, um, it's just a, a local man in the play, out, a local fisherman. A local fisher's out on, 
That is not said by Vizzini. That is said by Inigo. And it's very clear that in the book, it's sarcasm. But because Vizzini is so, like, his whole ego is built around being the smartest one, there's a lot of implication that um, uh, Inigo realizes that he's probably about as smart as Vizzini, but he doesn't do the planning. Mm-hmm. He just so uh, there's a lot of like sarcasm layered into the relationship that he has with with Vizzini. I, I was reading it more this viewing as Inigo is smarter than Vizzini, but he'll lose the job if he kind of steps up. You know, as he threatens. I think at one point Vizzini threatens to send him back to the the bar where he found him drunk and yeah. and all that. So he just sits back, shuts up, lets Vizzini take charge, and it's very clear that Vizzini is an idiot when he loses this battle of wits. Because every word he says makes no sense. <laughs> He's like, clearly, this powder's from Australia, and Australia is full of criminals, so clearly I can't drink the goblet in front of you. How is that clear? What does that have to do? The other thing is that you get full backstories on Inigo and Fezzik in their respective contests. Hmm. While, while Inigo is waiting for the man in black to climb the cliffs, mm-hmm. you get a backstory on his life and what happened to him and how he got where he is. He kind of does that still in the movie. He has that speech once um, the man in black, Roberts, yes. Wesley, as we were to find out. Oh, spoilers, by the way, <laughs> for a 35-year-old movie. <laughs> um, he has that wonderful speech where he tells the story of his scars. And he talks about the six-fingered man and his father and the sword and all that history. And it's such a great piece. It's like 30 pages of the book. Really? Because you go into like... Where he grew up and what what happened with the six fingered the six fingered sword and it's like what there's a whole other character named Yesti, who is uh, like the famous like well known sword maker who comes to his father when there's stuff that he can't do and it's wow. like they're friends and then you find out like Inigo trained for like th- like ten fifteen years and then finally came back and you find out that like he is a wizard which is higher than a master at being a, a sword uh, fencer a fencer. And, um, it's, and then you get all of Fezzik's backstory when it comes to Fezzik and it's like crazy detailed and, uh, and again, it's like another like 20 to 30 pages of backstory on these characters you just don't get in the movie. Yeah. And it's, it's odd because I have a theory and this is what I was saying earlier. I have a theory that Inigo Montoya is the main character of this movie. His arc makes so much more sense than Wesley's and Buttercup's. It's his movie. He shot... Like, there's a chunk in the middle where he's not present. But it's, the movie follows him. Almost more than Wesley and Buttercup. Maybe it's just because I've seen this movie 30 times. <laughs> it's actually supported in... The, the book is more even. Because it feels like the movie, you get a lot of Wesley and Buttercup. Um, in the book, it's a lot more evenly divided between... Like, you get scenes from Count Rugen's point of view. You get scenes from Humperdinck's point of view. You get scenes from Yellen's point of view. Yellen. Uh, you get scenes from, um, you get the backstory on Fezzik and Inigo, you get scenes from their point of view, you never get anything from Vincini, which I think supports the idea that he's actually an idiot. Um, but yeah, he, he's a dumbass. <laughs> I remember seeing something, I think, that William Goldman said, and he said, he loved the movie. But well, he, he said, wrote the movie. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but he said that the movie is like a nobler version of the book. Okay. Um, and that totally holds up because like most of the guys are huge douches in this book. <laughs> like even 
Wesley gets, we get to it later, but Wesley is mean to Buttercup. Yeah, let's get to that now, because that's, that's, <laughs> we're 22 minutes into this recording, and maybe 15 minutes into the movie, so. Yes. So, uh, Buttercup is kidnapped by the, uh, what was the it? The Sicilian choir of Sicilians? Crowd. The Sicilian crowd. <laughs> the Sicilian crowd uh, kidnaps her, take her up the cliffs of insanity, they're followed. Uh, they wait at the top, Inigo and the Dread Pirate Roberts fight. Roberts wins, knocks out Inigo, moves on. Fezix could have killed him with a rock, doesn't. They fight. He beats him by uh, choke holding him. You know, the old Andre the Giant special. Yeah. Love Andre the Giant in this movie. That's had to have subtitles on because I could not understand a word he was saying. That is something <laughs> William Goldman actually says. And he also says that he uh, wrote the part for Andre. There was never anyone else that was supposed to play that role. Perfect. He's so good. He fits it so well. And he's so charming. Even You don't have to know what he's saying to to get what he's saying. You know what I mean? Like, the, the way he carries himself and his smile and his eyes. Like, he, he tells so much story without needing to speak. It's almost like he learned that skill from professional wrestling. Oh, professional wrestling. <laughs> you. <laughs> um, and then uh, the third trial of Roberts, so to speak, is is Vicini. Pours the Iocane powder into both wine glasses so that he knows he'll survive no matter what happens. He won the Battle of Wits before it even began. Takes Buttercup. And they go. And then he is a dick. He is an absolute dick to her. As soon as he has the, uh, the ability to talk to her. Yes. He is just like, how dare you marry this man? I thought you loved someone, but no. If you love someone, you don't marry someone else. Always makes me uncomfortable, that scene. He, yeah, he... I feel like we have to remember that these dudes are like... He is between 22 and 25. She is... 20. Wait, they met when they, when she was 15? They grew up together. Oh, okay. Yeah, they grew up together. He was That a, makes sense, actually. Okay, yeah. Yeah, he was on her parents' farm forever, and it took until she was, like, 15, 16 to realize that um, she loved him. And um, so he left her... She, I believe she's 20 at the, the start of the book. Not okay. the start start, but the, the, but the start, start of the, the adventure. Story. Yes. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. I believe she's 20. Which I, I believe is five years after he leaves. Three. It's five in the movie. Okay, yeah, it's three years. Okay. It's three years in the book um, because he's going to America in the book to get his fortune. <laughs> America exists in the book? Yes. It, it feels like these places don't exist, but what you were describing, the, the framing device for the book, it makes sense it but has he, to exist but he also intentionally messes with time because he talks about like oh if europe existed it would have been florin would have been the most powerful thing in europe but it, europe has to exist in order for america to, to exist and yeah so it's like he's intentionally creating he's he's conf intentional confusion exactly and it's he also uses it for comic effect like whenever he uses an, an anachronistic saying he always has a little aside that's like this was actually because this happened in this year super early before this happened i can't think of a specific one right now but uh whenever he does something anachronistic it's actually not anachronistic <laughs> okay um so anywho yeah. uh wesley's being just a total dick mm -hmm. and she proves herself to him like, she explicitly states, I never loved him. No one said love here. Marriage is just a marriage. I still love my Wesley. Yeah. 
and she kicks him down a hill. Yes. And he yells as you wish. And then she goes, oh no. And my favorite scene, she yeets herself down the hill. She's like, down I go. <laughs> and then it's a solid 30 seconds of just these two stunt, these beautiful stunt people. <laughs> bouncing and just go, ooh, ah, ooh, ooh, ah, ooh. Like Lex Luger in WCW in the <laughs> mid-90s. Just, ooh, ah, ooh. So, in the book, there's a scene when they're walking, when they're walking into the fire swamp later, there's a bit where they have an argument, and Wesley is telling her, like, I told you not to come, I was trying to tell you not to follow me, because I can climb my way back up, but I can't climb my way back up with carrying you, and now we're stuck going into the fire swamp. That explains why they go into the fire swamp. Because he didn't realize it was there. Oh, okay, it's a little different in the movie. Because he definitely, because he knows where he's parked. He's parked. Where his, where his ship is docked. Yes. Is on the other side of the fire swamp. Yes. And, uh. His, his intention in the book is to go around it, but because she, she actually legitimately catches him off guard, and that's why he falls. Okay. In the book. Um, and, because she straight up just, like, pushes him in the book as well. Uh, but yeah, he didn't realize, he thought they could get out, but then he realized they were, too, they were being pursued too closely, and so they were going to have to go through the fire swamp. Which they do. Yes. Swimmingly. <laughs> she catches fire briefly. It's fine. She falls into the lightning sand. It's fine. He dives in and saves her. In the book, it's actually not lightning sand, which is also referenced. It's snow sand. Snow sand. Which is similar to lightning sand, lightning sand or quicksand, except it's described as being like talcum powder. Ooh. Um, but the fire swamp is actually from her point of view, and she actually isn't as useless in the fire swamp as she is in the movie. Okay. Um, like... She's not totally useless in the movie when the R.O.U.S. shows up. Fair. <laughs> uh, but she actually is the, the line that he says was like, you figured out that it makes a noise before the spurts of fire go off. She actually figures that out for herself in the book and is thinking it. Okay. Um... But she falls into the snow sand by accident because they don't know what it looks like. Yeah, and she just, like, disappears. Yes. Um, I noticed something this time. When he pulls her out of the lightning sand, they're embracing, and it's a very sweet scene. And he makes eye contact with two R.O.U.S.'s. And not a minute later, she's like, but what about the rodents of unusual size? And he's like, I don't think they exist! And then he gets tackled by one immediately. You were just looking at them, bro. What did you think those things were? He was trying not to scare her. Because in the book, he knows they're following them. Okay. But he's trying not to scare her, and so he doesn't tell her that he notices them until they start attacking. And in the in the book, they don't actually go after Buttercup. They are uh, cannibalistic and attracted to the smell of blood, so they're only ever going after him once he starts bleeding. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, that, that'll, like, it kind of turns towards Buttercup at one point, but only because she starts hitting it with a stick. <laughs> so I, I, think, I think I'll let that one slide. Um, of course they defeat the R.O.U.S. by rolling it into the fire, make their way out to the other end of the fire, 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 fire swamp. Yes. Um, and there they are captured by Humperdinck and Count Dooku. Count <laughs> Tyrone. Rugen. I can never remember his name. His name is Tyrone. His Tyrone. <laughs> I saw, I noticed that the first time. His name is Tyrone and it said one time he's referred to Tyrone once. Yes. And then it's Count Rugen every other time. Yes. I always forget his name. Don't know why, uh, but Tyrone, yeah. Tyrone and Humperdinck, they're being tracked this whole time because, you know, he's a great tracker. Yeah. He's got the zoo of death. Um, and then uh, there's a scene, this scene, 
Carrie Elwes is an amazing actor in this movie. There's one line he has in this scene when uh, Humperdinck is like, surrender. And he's like, oh, you wish to surrender? I, I accept your surrender. And then more guys with crossbows are just like, I think you should surrender. And three or four times he's told, and the last time he just says, death first. Oh! The, there's rage and passion in his eyes when he says that. And he is ready to die in that moment. And it's so believable and so good from a guy who spends the third act just ragdolling, <laughs> doing the best physical comedy. It's the same actor. He's so good in this movie. He um, says that in the book as well. It's such a good line. And um, Buttercup actually, she's described as whispering in this moment. Mm -hmm. and her motives are not clear even to herself in the book like that's the later source of uh struggle for her she doesn't realize what she's doing but when, when she, she asks him to uh be sent back to his ship yeah like she basically just what she, she doesn't realize what she's doing um but she and there's this heart because it's kind of from wesley's point of view and it's this heartbreaking thing where it's like he had just um scaled the cliffs of insanity defeated a wizard at fencing defeated a giant, um, drank poison, ran for hours. I love how it's it... not defeated the Sicilian, it's just drank poison. <laughs> that, that's the more impressive part of that scene. <laughs> um, he went through the fire swamp, fought an ROUS, um, had gone without sleep for, for like days, and he did it all for his world, and his world was walking away from him. Mm. And that's like the lowest point for him. Yeah, well, he gets a little lower. <laughs> <laughs> Emotionally. An emotional low point. Okay, I'll take that. I'll take that. Yeah, it, her her motives seem more clear in the movie at that scene, definitely. The, the movie seems a lot more streamlined for obvious yeah. reasons. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> and I feel like that's going to be a common theme over the course of this podcast. The movie's going to be more streamlined. If it's not, the filmmakers didn't do their job. <laughs> Honestly, there's a lot of the dialogue is word for word from the book. Except the book usually goes on for a line or two, and I think the movie does it better. Okay, well, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. <laughs> um, so Humperdinck accepts her uh, her request to send him back to his ship and immediately leans into his boyfriend, Tyrone, and says, <laughs> uh, don't do that, though. Do uh, the other thing. Send him to the Pit of Despair, uh, which he does. Um, and then we go to the Pit of Despair. I feel like I'm missing a scene... Um, I... No, no, it's right in the pit of despair. Yeah. Um, because, uh, the craggly-faced guy who's got the... Who's got, the he's got the voice, throat. and then he clears his throat, and he's got, like, just a normal voice. Yes. Um, love that guy. Does he have a name? He's just called the Albino. The Albino, that is He's actually, uh, the cousin of Yellen the Guard in... They're cousins? They're cousins. <laughs> that explains the terrible haircuts. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the Albino is, is nursing Wesley back to health, because he needs to be in full health for his torture. The torture goes on for a lot longer, because in the, in the book, it's 90 days okay. um, between when she's rescued and when um, the wedding takes place. The I was going to ask, because it's kind of unclear. Because at this point, they do jump back to the grandfather and grandson, um, and they have like a talk about... I forget what they talk about. like Who kills Humperdinck, I think, is this one. Yeah, which is also um, in there, but it's later. Okay. Oh, that might be later. No. No, yeah, no, no, that is later. That is later. That's when, that's when Wesley dies. Oh, okay. Almost dies. Yeah. Ne mostly dies? Mostly <laughs> dies. Um, uh, but they do jump back at some point. Um, but Humperdinck is... Oh, no, it's the dream. 
Yes. It's the dream. That's why they jump back. Um, Buttercup dreams that the king is dead. Yes. She has to get married the next morning, and the old hag boos her to oblivion. Yes. Queen of slime. Queen of filth. Queen of refuse. Yes. She wakes up ill. Can't go on. She cannot marry him. And she goes straight to Humperdinck and says, I will not marry you. And I believe that's when he promises to send his four, four fastest ships. ships. His yes. four fastest ships in the four cardinal directions, which if they're in Europe, one of those directions is land. <laughs> um, always bothered me. Always bothered me. You're not an island. Um, is Florian an island? No. Then you're not an island. <laughs> what four directions are you referring to? One of those ships is running aground. But I digress. Um, he makes this promise. And at this point it's revealed that he is the one who hired Fizzini to start the war. And he's now changed his mind. And it will have more impact if she is, quote, killed by Gilder folk on their wedding night. Instead of kidnapped, you know, months before. Um... In the book, it's also, uh, he was never popular with his subjects. After he rescues Buttercup, she is both even more beloved, and he starts to become beloved, because everyone is like, you did a great thing by saving her. We love you now. Ah, okay, that's not in the movie at all. Yeah. Like, I, there's, there's bits and bobs of, he's not liked. Um, Miracle Max being the bit and the bob. <laughs> um, uh, so... In order to sell this, uh, Yellen, the, the guard, shows up. He says, hey, these guys from Gilder are infiltrating and they're gonna kill my bride. And he says, my spies ain't heard none of this. What are you smoking? <laughs> that is the third scene with Yellen in the book. This is the third scene. He comes in much earlier. Because there's a lot more of like political intrigue. Like, okay. There's a whole other princess thing that happens. Whoa, what? <laughs> Before he agrees to marry Buttercup... Uh, he has the a princess from Gilder come, and the crux of it is that she's bald, and he won't marry a bald princess, and that's why he only wants someone who's beautiful. We see no one from Gilder in the movie, and now I want to see the Gilder people. I imagine it's a Springfield-Shelbyville thing. Like, it's, they're exactly the same, just a little off. Exactly. Like, it's literally, in the book, it's described as, like, um, this is one of the asides where he's like, I took this part out. This is what it was. Okay. Um, but one of the asides, he explains that this is actually Morgan Stern, the author saying that, um, Gilder is actually much more highly advanced and better at everything than Florin is, which is why Florin is constantly trying to like start stuff with them. Um, and also Humperdinck, it's like implied that they are constantly at war and it is only like recently that they're not at war. Okay. And, and of course Humperdinck wants to spark those flames. Yes. Oh. Uh. <laughs> um, also. He, he is George Bush. <laughs> Buttercup is his twin towers. <laughs> and Gilder is the Middle East. Jet fuel can't melt Buttercup. <laughs> Jack Fuel can't melt true love. There we go. Yeah, no. <laughs> um, also, I don't know if I said this already, but but Wesley is tortured regularly for a while, like yeah. through regular means because the the um, machine is not finished yet. I I feel like I understand why that wouldn't be as prevalent in the movie because this is a very family movie, and you don't want more than two scenes of torture in a family movie. Two's fine. 
Two's fine. You can get by with two. Disney's okay with two. <laughs> More than that. You're, you're pushing some boundaries there. Um, so, sends Yellen to clean up the Thieves' Forest yes. to get these Gilder spies out. Yes. And that's when we're reunited with our hero, Inigo Montoya, and Fezzik, the Brute Squad himself. <laughs> um, Inigo, soured by his loss to this man in black in fencing. He trained for 20 years, couldn't beat this stranger. Goes back to the bar where he, he was found, starts drinking, because he's got to go back to the beginning, according to Vizzini. Yes. Fezzik finds him there drunk, sobers him up, and uh, they realize, uh, oh, Fezzik tells him that he's found the six-figured man. He's seen the count. Yes. He's found him for Inigo. Let's go storm the castle. But how can we storm the castle? Our brains are gone. We're just the steel. We're just the brawn. We don't have the smarts. What about the man in black? Where could he be? And then the scream. That, uh... Fezzik... Same thing happens. Um, Fezzik... Inigo, uh, Inigo realizes that... Um, he, he deduces that Prince Humperdinck is the one who hired them. They never knew that. Only Vizzini knew that. Okay, not in the movie. Uh, so Inigo figures it out, and he figures out, okay, so he was hired by Prince Humperdinck. Why would Prince Humperdinck want to kill his fiancé? Well, he got thwarted in killing his fiancé. Um, so we know that he has a bad temper, so of course the man in black has to be here because he, we know he was captured because Buttercup came back. And, uh, apparently Humberdick made an announcement, whatever. So, um, we know he's here, we just need to find him. How can we find him? Okay. Then there is a screen. There's also a previous scene where the, the first time the machine works and they use it to kill a dog. Ooh. And there's the first death scream of the dog and everyone is, like, unsettled by it. And oh. then there's this whole scene with Rugen and Humberdick, because Humberdick has been watching the torture up until mm -hmm. now. Um, and Humberdick's finally like... I'm too busy. I can't do it. It's like, it's played for comedy in the movie where he's like, I've got my wife to murder. Oh, I've, I've got my wife to murder, a wedding to plan, a war to start. I'm swapped. <laughs> yes. And at this point, they've been torturing Wesley for like two months. Yeah. And Rugen finally comes down and sets up the machine, like has the albino set up the machine and everything in mm -hmm. front of him. And he's like, I know you've been faking the response to the torture all this time, um, but you cannot fake the response to this. So I'm just going to let you sit with this overnight. Like, you heard what it did to that dog. Now you get to figure out... Now you get to think about it. Okay. And then they do the next thing. Which is when Humperdinck, realizing he's still not going to get his buttercup. She's still not going to go along with it because she still knows deep down inside that Wesley's alive. He cranks that bitch up to 50. It's only 20 in the book. Oh, it's up to 50 here. And it's made clear earlier that that is the number of years taken from your life. And that is also made clear here. <laughs> At this point, they've been tortured. Uh, when he finally does the death scream, he's been torturing him with the machine for like a week or so. Mm -hmm. So he's already had like 10 or 20 years sucked away from him. Um, and then Wesley... Uh, it's important that Wesley cries because he like... You know how you have that scene where he just like weeps quietly. Yeah, when the the first time he gets tortured and uh, yeah. and Rugen asks, "So how do you feel?" It's just <laughs> it's the saddest <laughs> and also like deeply hysterical. Yes. <laughs> uh, so the scene in the book this happens 
I think it also happens in the movie, but Buttercup finds out that he lied about the ships. And she's like, doesn't matter. He's still going to come for me. Um, and also, you suck, and you're a coward, and you're terrible at everything. Um, and Humperdinck is like, how dare you call me a coward? Like, basically, like, drags her by her hair to her room, and then that's when he runs to um, the... He runs to the Zoo of Death to um, do the 20 years because he's like, she just needs to admit that I'm a better man than him. I know I'm a better man than him. I know I am. And he has the whole speech where he's like, you, she still loves you and you still love her. And I, I'm going to kill you so that you have to suffer more than anyone else. And the suffering is heard by our hero in Nego Montoya <laughs> <laughs> and Fezzik. <clears throat> and they go, that can only be one man. His love, the love of his life, his deepest joy, is getting married to another man tonight. Only one man can make that sound. Um, I did not know that they had heard a dog make that sound earlier. Yes. So in the movie, it's just, oh, who could be having that much suffering? So they go to the grove, find the albino about to enter the pit of despair, accidentally jog his memory a little too hard, and he's probably never waking up. <laughs> this is the zoo of death scene. They okay. go through the zoo of death. Oh, he's in the zoo of death. He's on the fifth level of the zoo of death. Oh, so they do they have to fight the animals through, or do they just have to? Yes, some of them. They okay. get the all the animals in the first two levels are caged. They get to the third level, and the snake drops on them, and Inigo um, tricks him into uh, basically Inigo. They're getting suffocated by the snake because it's like it's it's a constrictor. Mm -hmm. And Inigo is like, I had such rhymes for you, Fezzik. And then the snake, like, closes around their throat. And Fezzik is like, what rhymes? I need to know the rhymes before I die. What rhymes? And he, that gives him the strength to break off the oh. snake and kill it. Oh, that's so good! And then Inigo's like, I'm sorry, I just needed something to have you save our lives. And he's like, you lied to me? And he, like, stomps away through to the next level. Oh. And the fourth level is bats. And they're Turkish king bats. And um, Inigo uh, ends up saving Fezzik, and then there's this funny bit at the end where Fezzik is like, well, you know, I was actually, you just tricked me, that's fine, you didn't actually lie. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's this whole thing where the fifth level, the entrance to the fifth level, is actually supposed to be this spider, but the room is like super well lit, and you can just go right up to the door, and there's nothing wrong with the stairs, it's not suspicious in any way. And so that freaks Inigo out to the point of him almost losing his mind, which scares the crap out of um, Fezzik. So he just barrels right through the door. The trap is on the door handle. It's a spider that only bites you if you turn the handle. Because ah. no one's supposed to go through this way. Um, it's uh, In the book, the secret entrance of the tree is still there. But they don't find out about it, so they go through the zoo of death. Okay. Um, and so they they don't actually have to fight the spider because they don't even know it's there. Yeah. And when they get there, they find the dead body of the... I, I understand why that... Wait, did they not kill the albino themselves? Uh, yes, they did. So okay. that still happens. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah. He, yeah, yeah. He, he, the albino is getting the wheelbarrow to carry the dead body out. Okay. And, um... That explains why he has a wheel... I didn't... I never realized why he has a wheelbarrow. Yep. <laughs> that, that makes so much sense. Um, I also understand completely why the zoo was taken out for the movie. It would be very scary. Yeah, and also, like, another 20 minutes on a 95-minute movie. Not necessary. Yeah. Um, so they find the, uh, the grove. <clears throat> Don't know where Wesley is. And they go, praise to his father, 
for a sword to point in the way, pokes a tree. He sighs in despair, leans on the tree, hits the knot, the door opens. They found Wesley, and they take him to Miracle Max. <laughs> One of the funniest scenes in this movie. That's that's Billy Crystal, right? It is Billy Crystal, yes. Billy Crystal, and is it Tracy Ullman? No. I Who think it? it's, it is a, like a really famous comic actor. Uh. She was not in, they abridged this scene so hard that Val doesn't, Valerie doesn't even appear, his wife, in the ebook or the audiobook. She does appear in the book. They took the wife out of the audiobook? Yes! I was very upset with Mr. Reiner when oh, he did Lord. that. What, what a stupid move. Um, <clears throat> please keep vamping while I look up to see who plays the wife, because she's scene, also brilliant. The scene is a lot less funny, but it still has the same comedic thing. There's this whole thing throughout this book about husbands and wives fighting. Like, Buttercup's parents are constantly Carol fighting. Carol Kane. Carol Kane. Lost it. Why do I think Tracy Ullman? Um, There's this whole thing about husbands and wives constantly fighting. Yes. So, like, Buttercup's parents do it. Um, Inigo's... Uh, Inigo's pseudo-parents, even though they're not married, they still bicker like a married mm -hmm. couple. Um, Fezzik's parents bicker that way. Um, so it, it makes, it continues the, that trend. Okay, it, it's a trope, it's more of a trope in the book, but it's just a great scene in the movie. Yes. When he just refuses to help them. Not a witch, I'm your wife! It's <laughs> a great line. Um, he refuses to help them. Uh, he didn't say it's true love. He said to blave. And we all know to blave means to bluff. And you killed him because he owes you money. <laughs> and she, you know, whips some sense into him. Because every weak man needs a strong woman behind him. <laughs> to whip him into shape. And in the book, it's also, <laughs> if I bring this guy back to life, it means Prince Humperdinck suffers. Perfect, let's do it. That's, like, word for word what he, that's the only scripted line he <laughs> says in that scene. I think the rest of it is improvised. <laughs> so. Um, but he makes this big chocolate pill that looks like a piece of candy that I want to eat. I always think of how delicious that looks, every scene. It's just chocolate coated, like, you know, there's some nougat in there, a little bit of caramel. Chocolate coating makes it go down easier. Oh, oh, that would go down so smooth. Um... <laughs> So they gotta wait 15 minutes to feed it to Wesley. They don't cost the time. The wedding's in half an hour. They need him awake. So In the book, that's set up as the pill is only gonna work for 60 minutes. Oh. But Max messes it up, and he only has it for 40 minutes. So there's a running timer throughout this scene that they have... They only have 40 minutes, but Wesley thinks he has 60 minutes. Okay. That would... That would uh, stress me out too much. <laughs> if that were part of the movie. Because <laughs> every every wasted moment, I would just be like, why aren't you... You have an objective and you have a timer. Objective first, my guy. <laughs> no fluff. Only stuff. Um, so they, they revive Wesley. Uh, they realize there's 60 guards at the castle gate, not the 30 they were expecting. Yes. It's 100 in the book. It's 100 in the book. Of course it's 100 in the book. They probably couldn't hire that many extras for the day. <laughs> No, six, 60 works, though. It's double what they were expecting. Yeah. They're a little worried. Wesley can move his eyes and mouth. And uh, he'll wiggle a little finger. He'll he'll smile. No, what does he do that... He does something. He, he can wiggle finger. his toes and he can wiggle his fingers. Yeah, he does like little things. And Fezzik is like, you got it. You're healing fast. And uh, that's not taken well <laughs> by his comrades. Um, but uh, Wesley comes up with a plan. But if only they had a wheelbarrow. And if only they had a Holocaust cloak. That is, like, where that came from, I have no idea. 
in the book. Like, it, it's out of nowhere in the movie. He, the, he says he gets it from Miracle Max's because he, it fits. He was allowed to keep it. So, he gets it from Miracle Max's in the book. Again, this is part of the section that William Goldman took out mm-hmm. um, in his abridgment. Um, they have to go journey to find all the stuff for the miracle cure. So he gets the Holocaust cloak because he needs it to get Holocaust mud for the pill. And it protects you from the burning? It's never explained. That's weird. I I almost prefer that it's just like, if only I had a Holocaust cloak, and he just pulls it out of his garments and like, I've got one right here. (laughs) (laughs) Not the last time that is used as a deus ex machina either. Oh, for real? It's used in the sequel. Oh, we'll, we'll talk about that later. Um, so they come up with this plan where they put Fezzik in this Holocaust cloak, light him on fire, he claims to be the Dread Pirate Roberts, and they just scare everybody away but Yellen. Um, works like a charm, um, Yellen is like, oh, I will never surrender, uh, give us the keys. I have no keys, Fezzik rip off his arms. This key? (laughs) literally word for word from the book perfect no notes <laughs> nothing needed to change it's exactly what needed to happen <laughs> it's perfect and his cell is just incredible on that so they get into the castle but it's too late because simultaneously Mowage Mowage is what brings us together today is it like that in the book yes is it spelled out with that accent yes I don't know if you heard me cackling while I was watching the movie. This is the first time I've seen this with subtitles on. Oh, no. And the subtitles spell it like he says it. Yep. It is, if you watch this movie later, (laughs) next time you watch this movie listening at home, please turn on subtitles at least just for the marriage scene. It was an extra level of comedy. The way it's spelt. Because it's not always the spelling you're expecting, but it's hilarious. Killed me. Absolutely destroyed me. They go through the ceremony, but they don't. They skip ahead to man and wife. He says man and wife. And they abscond her up to the honeymoon suite. Um, Meanwhile, our... I guess they're not a Sicilian choir now. Would they be a Spanish choir? (laughs) A Spanish crowd, yes. A Spanish crowd. Our Spanish crowd goes in, and Inigo Montoya finally comes face to face with Tyrone. He's so much less intimidating when you call him Tyrone. <laughs> His name is Tyrone. What do you want me to call him? Count Rugen? He's not a count to me. Not my count. I didn't vote for him. It's Tyrone. You don't vote for royalty. Exactly. That's a problem. <laughs> Finally face to face with Tyrone. And like any bitch named Tyrone would, Just he runs like a coward. He it scurries. Is, in the book, it is described as him saying he did something truly unexpected. He turned and ran. And you know what? It plays so unexpected in the movie, too. Because he squares. He draws his sword, and he leans in, and then just gone. Dark down the hallway. Yes. Inigo chases him. This scene coming up actually breaks my heart every time I see it. And it's Inigo just slamming his body into this door so hard that he's literally shaking the castle walls. You can see dust falling down the walls trying to get in and he's yelling for Fezzik to get this door open because he can't do it and he's getting away and it took him 20 years to find him and he's getting away and Fezzik has to you know he's holding this rag doll 
of Wesley <laughs> sticks his arm into a suit of armor, punches the door right off its hinges, and then he goes out like a shot. And he finally catches up with the Count. But the Count, like the coward bitch that he is, daggers him in the gut from afar. Domingo Montoya appears. What? In the text. Inigo, you know how he has that moment where he's like, I'm sorry, I tried, and like sinks down? In the book, Domingo Montoya appears in Inigo's head and says, I don't want your sorry. You haven't let me rest for 20 years. You're not dying here. That's incredible. Because <laughs> I, I was thinking, watching that scene, like, there's got to be something going on in his head. Because he's dying. He's got the he's got the, the dagger in his gut. He can barely parry these stabs. So he takes one in the shoulder and one in the other bicep. Um, he's going to bleed out. And he gets that strength from somewhere. I love that. It's like the, the essence of his dead father being like, No, you have a job to do. You will do your job, my it's, son. It's also um, his Scottish swordmaster. <laughs> Uh, telling him what to do, and it's this—it's like the same voice. It's a—is it Sean Connery? <laughs> Basically, because he's just like you are so useless and terrible, you can't even do this right. I'm just and imagining Sean Connery from Highlander appears next. <laughs> I mean, uh, and so he—it's actually he's being talked through everything by the two voices that are like important in his past. Okay. And so that's how he gets up and he does everything. And he does the um, you, the the line. Not the Inigo Montoya line, but the I want my father back, you son of a bitch. Oh, in the book. Incredible line. In the book. I, I want money. I want power. I want everything I ask for. You have it. I want my father back, you son of a bitch. And as he's saying this, he gets Tyrone in the shoulder. He gets Tyrone in the bicep. I don't respect him. I'm not calling him his title. <laughs> He gets the fucking slashes on the cheeks. He gets him every single way he that that he was got, except for the gut. That's the last line. I want my father back. Stabbed in the gut. He finally gets his revenge. In the book, he he says, I want Domingo Montoya, you son of a bitch. Oh. And he also, he doesn't stab him in the gut. He starts cutting out his heart. And because he says... The last thing he says to him is, you took my heart when I was 10, I'm going to take yours now. And Rugen canonically dies of fright. Well, that's not a PG rating, so <laughs> sword to the guts enough. <laughs> yeah. He gets he gets just enough to go down. Um, and then Montoya continues to search for Wesley and Buttercup. Yes. Wesley, somehow, it's never explained, because he, he does not have the use of his legs. In the book, he does. Oh, he does. Okay. He does. It's he's shaky and wobbly, but he has the. He's also down to less than ten minutes at this point. Okay, because we don't see it yeah. in the movie, and it works better that we don't. Yeah. Because as she's led to her honeymoon suite, Buttercup grabs a knife, holds it to her chest, and hears the words, "There are very few perfect breasts in this world. It would be a pity to damage yours," <laughs> which is something I say to you every night <laughs> before we go to sleep. Wesley is in her bed. Yes. She jumps on him, smothers him with kisses, asks why he's not reacting. He says gently. She grabs him by the by the lapels, pulls him up, says, gently. Why can you only say gently? He says gently again. She drops him, knocks his head on the headboard. I giggle. 
And then Humperdinck appears. Yes. And they are going to duel to the death. No. To the pain. He does say to the pain. And he's explaining everything. He doesn't actually insult him until the final bit. And that final bit where he's like, perhaps I lack the strength to stand. Perhaps whatever. Mm -hmm. He dies again. That final line, he dies, and it's described as his eyes roll back in his head. And, like, Humperdinck has dropped his sword at that point. And then he sees his eyes roll back in his head. And then Humperdinck is like, ha, and goes for his sword. And then Wesley's eyes flick open again, and he gets up, and he's like, I didn't mean it, I didn't mean it. Oh, that's so good. It's so cinematic, but I get why they yeah, couldn't do that in the... Because they changed the timer, it wouldn't quite make sense in the movie for that to happen. But I love that. Yeah. That's really good. But it is a moment when he's laying in bed and he's like, perhaps I am bluffing, perhaps I don't have the strength to stand. Or, and then he just gets up, points the sword, like tip of the sword, like right on the lens of the camera and says, drop your sword. I'm ready to stand up and cheer. And I've seen this a dozen times. Love this movie. It's such a great moment. And he drops his sword, sits down, Buttercup ties him up. Uh, Wesley kind of collapses. I knew you were bluffing, but Montoya comes back. They leave him there to just dwell in his cowardice. Fezzik's downstairs with four white horses he stole from the prince. They throw themselves out the window like the prince in Cinderella 3. Um, that one's just for you. <laughs> that, that was just for you. <laughs> like, legit, like, Wesley, after after offering uh, his his job as Dread Pirate Roberts to Inigo Montoya, literally just falls out of frame. Yep, just, so good! And then Montoya is moments later. I do not know how Fezzik catches them both. Doesn't matter, it's a movie. They ride off on their four white horses. They, in the book, they are actually stopped at the castle gates by um, Yellen and the Brute Squad. Does he want his key back? <laughs> Buttercup is the one that handles them. She gets off of her horse. She, like, stands in the saddle of the horse, and she's just like, your prince is in danger, and Count Rugen is dead. You need to go tend them. And Yellen is like, these these men only answer to me. They don't answer to you. And she is described as being like, you know the scene in Lord of the Rings where Galadriel is, like, being possessed by the ring? Oh, and, like, her face gets dark and her eyes glow and she all that? She is, yeah. Buttercup is described as being, like, a a creature of, uh, of ethereal beauty and undeniable power in that moment. And she's just like, I am the queen. Oh. And the brute squad backs down and goes to find uh, Count Rugen and, yeah, and um, uh, the prince. Okay. And that's how they get out, and uh, it's just, it's such a cool like moment because she doesn't get anything else yeah, in this book. Yeah, she she doesn't get much. She doesn't get anything in the movie. Like she has moments of um, like grace and nobility, um, and like, but but she doesn't make any real decisions. She makes, uh, I guess requests. She she doesn't, but she doesn't do much. She's she's kind of a vessel in yeah. the movie. She's more of a person in the book. Yeah, and and I like that, and I kind of wish that scene would have stayed. I get why it's not there because the threat's been neutralized. Take it home. Yeah, it's a family movie. The kids are getting antsy. It's ninety two minutes in. Yeah, we need to get back and roll credits. Um, so I I get it, but I do like that she does something and she's still she she has a part to play in their yeah. escape. I do like that. Other than you know. 
jumping out a window, getting caught by a giant, and riding a horse. Yeah. Um. So they ride off. They're about to kiss. Grandpa says, "Nah, you don't want to hear the kissing parts, grandson." And he's like, "No, nah, go ahead." And he says, "The one of the top five kisses of all time. This one trumps them all." There is no the kiss end. in the book. Really? There is no kiss in the book. Instead, the book ends with um, Wesley relapsing, Inigo passing out from blood loss, Buttercup's horse throwing a shoe, and Fezzik's <laughs> horse stopping. I I was thinking during the end of this, like, Inigo was stabbed in the gut. He is going to go septic real soon. Um... Wesley still barely has the use of his legs. He's going to fall off that horse. Uh, Fezzik's going to break his horse. Have you seen Andre the Giant? <laughs> the reason... In, so, the sequel starts at that moment um, where, like, they're, where it picks up in the sequel, it starts at the moment where they're being chased by the... Oh, sorry. Fezzik doesn't... Fezzik's horse doesn't stop. His... Uh, he takes a wrong turn. So they're not going towards the channel. So, But he's the one that's leading them. Okay. Um, and the book ends, and it's actually just, like, there's a, a little end note by um, William Goldman, the abridger, who is like, um, this, this is how he ended it, as, like, a lady or the tiger situation. And everyone's like, oh, this is, every, all the Florinese critics were like, this is such a great um, uh, satirical moment to end on. And he's like, but... I personally think that they did escape and they made it to the ship and everything is fine. Um, I'm not saying, but I do think that eventually like Buttercup lost her looks and she and Wesley did fight and somebody eventually beat Inigo and somebody eventually beat um, Fezzik. But like the whole point of this is that life isn't fair. It's just fairer than death. And that's the last line Ooh. of the book. I like that a lot. I actually. do too. That's interesting for the book. But, family movie. We gotta go back to Grandpa Grandson. Yep. Grandson, you know, sick in bed. It's nighttime now. Grandpa's gotta go home. I love his little, like, check the pockets two, three times. <laughs> like, he's not ready to leave. Like, he wants to say something, but he doesn't want to take any more time from his grandson. And then, uh, little kid, uh, what's his name? Fred Savage. Fred Savage. A little savage boy. I couldn't remember which savage it was. <laughs> uh, boy meets world's brother. Um... <laughs> Says, Grandpa, can you come back and read it again tomorrow? And Grandpa turns and says, as you wish, roll credits. What a beautiful movie. I love it so much. The, of the two of them, I, I think I like the movie more. Mm. Because the commentary, mm, Goldman, I get that he was doing this in, like, the 70s and 80s. Mm -hmm. He was kind of sexist and fatphobic in his, um, his, uh, introductions and his, like, side pieces. Like, there's a whole thing about how this one maid got fat, um, and so that's why the, um, that's why she wasn't on the list of the most beautiful women anymore. And, like, he talks about how his son was really fat when he was growing up. Mm -hmm. And he's, like, there's a lot of barely veiled distaste and disgust for his wife. 
uh, because she's uh, she's too cold to him. And there's, there's like, a lot of, like, weird sexism and, and fat phobia in his asides. Um, and I'm talking about, like, the introductions and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but the book itself, if, if you go into it expecting the movie, you're going to be disappointed. Because I think it's a little... It, it's a lot more mean-spirited than the movie is. I think him describing the movie as being nobler is accurate. Yeah, yeah it sounds like it. Um, and I think that was a good decision. Um, I, I, I don't know who made that decision to, to go that route with it, if it was Reiner or if it was Goldman on the screenplay or the production team, but it was a smart decision. Because this movie... <clears throat> excuse me. The movie is so timeless. Yeah, it's so good. Like, <clears throat> it's... You can tell, if you, if you see a lot of movies, you can tell it's a movie from the 80s. The sets have that look to them. Like, the soundstage. You can see the matte painting, uh, backdrops. Um, like, when I was saying earlier that uh, Inigo Montoya is running into the door so hard he's shaking the castle walls. <coughs> he's literally shaking the wall of the set. <laughs> like, you can see dust coming out of a lantern behind it. Because, like, the whole wall is moving. He's hitting it with such force. But I kind of love that about this movie. It's charming because yeah. it's it. There's a definite level of like suspension of disbelief. Because we already have that disconnect. <laughs> we already have a narrator that is in the universe reading it from a book. We already know it's not really happening. Mm-hmm. We know it's a work of fiction. It's fine that it's on sets. It's fine that like you can tell like the, like the the uh, water crossing when she's swimming with the eels. You could tell that was on a on a backlot pool, and that. Just where it gets dark is where the wall is. And there's no more water beyond that. Like, you can tell. But I love that about the movie. Because it allows you to concentrate more on the characters. Yes. Like, once you realize, okay, that background is just a painting of some clouds, then you look into Nigo Montoya's eyes as he's telling the story of his father. Yes. And it's all there. Like, yeah, when they're doing their their fencing scene, you see, like, the handholds in the bar that they do their gymnastics on. (laughs) But then you also can appreciate, oh, this is a stuntman doing this. And these guys trained in fencing. Yes. And they're really doing this. And it, it, it adds to the appreciation for me. I don't need CG backgrounds that look like Avatar. And uh, full disclosure, I also, a while ago, I read Carrie Ellis's book on the making of The Princess Bride. Uh, he did that scene with a broken toe, I think. Sounds right. Um, because of an accident earlier while filming. Um, and also, he and Mandy trained for that sword fight. The entire time during filming. Mm-hmm. That was the last thing they filmed. And it's so good. It's such a great fight scene. Um, carries the emotional weight of uh, Inigo's past. We don't quite know that it's Wesley, but we know it's Wesley. Um, so, so there's stakes there. It's such a good scene. Such a beautiful movie. Um, is there anything else you wanted to touch upon? Um, <clears throat> not from... Not from the source material directly. Okay. Yeah, I would I would say, uh, piggybacking on your earlier point, I think I would also prefer the movie having not read the book. I like that there's a little bit more going on. I love the idea of the zoo of death. That feels like something perfect for this universe. Yes. Um, I like how there's more backstory. I wouldn't mind reading some of the backstory, specifically of Fezzik. Because you get Indigo's backstory in the movie. Yeah. It's not as fleshed out, but it's there, and it's a driving force for him. Yeah. Fezzik is just, he just wants to be there, I guess. He's just there. 
He also is, uh, you get more of him in the unwritten sequel. The un- unwritten sequel? So, G- William Goldman only wrote, he only got one chapter of the sequel written. He worked on it till he died. Because mm. he he wanted to match The Princess Bride because he knew how much The Princess Bride meant to so many different people. He only ever wrote one chapter. And that chapter is entitled Fezzik Dies. No! And it opens with Fezzik saving Butter... The, the sequel is called Buttercup's Baby. And it opens with Fezzik saving... Uh, they're saving um, Waverly, the daughter of uh, Buttercup and Wesley, because uh, she's been kidnapped. And by she... Sicilians? No, by a skinless man. The skinless boy choir of <laughs> that? No. <laughs> no, I don't feel good about that either. <laughs> uh, so she's been kidnapped, and the kidnapper realizes that Fezzik is going to catch him, and so he throws Waverly off of a cliff. Fezzik dives after her to catch her. And you don't actually get, in the way that William Goldman does, you don't actually get the death. You just get him thinking about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and he couches the fact that he's never written any, like, he couches the fact that more of it wasn't written as, like, legal struggles with the Morgenstern estate, uh, which he references in multiple of the introductions to the different editions. Um but yeah, it's it's actually kind of sad because like he so badly wanted to write a sequel, but he didn't think he could do it. Yeah, I can understand having the pressure of a work like this hanging over your head. Yeah, absolutely. Um, granted, we were both born after the movie came out, so like we said earlier, our first introduction was the movie. Yeah. But when I think of William Goldman, I think of The Princess Bride. It's it's his it's his opus. It's I didn't a know brilliant that, piece of work. I didn't know that he had other movies. <laughs> he he does have other movies. Let's uh, let's, uh, let's he take references a look-see. Butch Cassidy and the Butch Sundance Cassidy and the Sundance Kid is definitely one of his. Which uh, I think he said is what gave him the opportunity to write um, Princess Bride, like the screenplay. Mm-hmm. I, I think you're right. Um, All the President's Men as well was him. Oh yeah. Yeah, which is also a great movie. Yeah. Um. Really I don't think it's history, based on a, huh? don't think it's based on a book, so we're not going to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, I think that's about all I had. If you had any more, no, I think I think we both agree that they're both good, but I think the movie's better, and that's yeah. an interesting bar to set on the first episode. <laughs> yeah, uh, what is our second episode going to be? Should we say? <sighs> should we re- should we reveal that uh, a copy of Andy Weir's The Martian? <laughs> Is sitting on the bookshelf over there, and a Blu-ray copy of The Martian is on my shelf. <laughs> Should um, we tell the? Do we want to put the specifics of the editions that we watched and read in the notes of? I mean, this? I I used the uh, Criterion edition Blu-ray um, uh, to watch it with. I did not watch any of the supplements or uh, director's commentaries on this. That won't always be the case. I will probably listen to a director's commentary, as well as watch the movie Raw um, in the future. I listened to the Rob Reiner uh, audiobook um, 
the it's narrated by Rob Reiner. Um, I believe it was also the 30th edition. Um, and I read the 30th edition uh, copy of The Princess Bride with all of the introductions and supplementary bonus material. Um, and that's why I'm editing. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that's... Yeah. I think that ends our storybook story. We should probably do that in the beginning next time, which editions probably. we did. Eh, whatever. It's our first podcast. Yeah. Who cares? Um, so next, uh, in about two weeks, we'll drop uh, The Martian. By Andy Weir. Uh, I know you already said that. But. Yeah. It's all good. <laughs> um, where can people find you online if you want to be available online? Oh, you can find... I feel so gross saying that phrase, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> You can find uh, me on Twitter at uh, Pretty Special, P-R-I-T-T-Y-S-P-E-S-H-U-L. Uh, you can also find the podcast at... Soon Major Pod. Uh, Soon Major Pod. Um, and Bill, where can people find you on the internet if they want to find you? I'm on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at Mr. Billy Beck, M-R Billy Beck. Um, don't expect much from following either of us on <laughs> social media at this point in time, but we're there. Uh, we're, we're there. <laughs> um, uh, endings. Endings are hard. Uh, see you next time. Roll credits. <laughs>